And good morning. morning. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love and thank you that your methods, your principles, your truths bring healing to hearts and minds. We pray that we can embrace, apply, and live out and share the, the principles of your kingdom more effectively in our lives to advance your kingdom on earth that you might come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. So we're doing lesson 13 today, which is entitled Waging Peace. That's the title, Waging Peace. Do you like the title? I, I liked it because it's kind of provocative. It makes you, whoa, it makes you go, wait a second, waging peace instead of waging war, of course. And how can we wage peace? And as, as, as I thought about it, I thought, okay, and I'm going to ask you, is this waging peace? Is this referring to societal peace? We are to wage peace in our communities? Is it, is it referring to internal peace, that we are to wage war with our own selves so we have peace within? Is it uh, referring to spiritual peace? We are to wage war against everything that sets us up, up against the knowledge of God so that we have peace with God, mm-hmm. or all of it? And are they connected in some way? What do you see the connections to be? How are they connected? Is there, uh, is there one place we have to start first before we can actually advance peace in the other areas? God's methods. So personally, God's methods. Can we have peace with ourselves? Genuine peace with ourselves. Internal peace with ourselves if we don't have peace with God. No. No. Can we have peace in our relationships? Genuine godly peace if we don't have peace with God. And then when does the battle, this internal battle with self, truly begin? After you're born again. After you're born again, when we receive a new heart and right spirit, when when we're converted, when we're set right in heart and mind with God, when we're justified. This is when the actual war with self truly begins. Prior to that, we're primarily warring with everyone else. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. So step one in war- waging peace is to be reconciled to God. Would you agree? To experience his grace, his goodness, his mercy, his forgiveness, his healing and transforming power working in our lives through our faith or trust in Jesus and what he has achieved for us. That's when the real battle in self begins. If you think back on your life, when you actually surrendered your heart to Jesus, didn't there then become some battles you had to have with yourself? And that can bring battles with the people you live with. Well, we're not there yet, Linda. <laughs> Jumping ahead. Sorry. Okay. Okay. So we have to battle with our old habits, with our distorted thinking, with our preconceived ideas with the beliefs that we held that we, as the spirit of truth is leading us in truth, we might confront beliefs that we used to believe that we realize are actually not the fuller expression of truth, but maybe we wrote a book on it. Maybe we put a blog on it. Maybe we did a sermon on it. And ego and pride doesn't want to admit that we actually put something out wrong. So we have a battle with our own pride because we've said things that we now uh, realize aren't exactly the way they are because the spirit of truth is leading us in the unfolding truth. We have a battle with self to do. We have a battle with our insecurities, with our guilt, with our shame, with the, with the narratives in our head. Do you think that Ellen White had that art? Yes. That she maybe regretted that she'd written some things earlier. 
Oh, I don't know about, I don't know about that. But, but early in her life, yeah, she, she talks about this arc of her preconceived beliefs, the beliefs in the way she used to do things. It's a progressive thing. She talks about the, the Sunday Sabbath belief, the, the dietary change in health beliefs, the battle that she had to wage with herself over those things. She had this exact same arc that she had to wage. As untruth unfolded, she had to battle with self to get it applied, and then she could move on. And, and how that works, if, if you're not willing to battle and apply the truth, you're kind of stuck at that position. It's like going down the road of life and you come to a fork in the road. If you aren't willing to decide on the right fork, which is the fork of truth, and you go down the other road instead, which is the path of error, you're not advancing in truth anymore. No more truth is coming your way until you back up and deal with that one, and then more truth will come your way. And so many people say stuck because there's a particular issue that they're convicted on. It's not one they don't know yet. It's, I know it. I don't want to deal with it. And so they're at that place of pause, waiting, and the Holy Spirit keeps bringing them about, keeps bringing them about, and keeps bringing experiences in their life to bring that issue home to them over and again because they need to apply that truth to their life. And then that's how growth and development happens. So we have the first battle. Once, we, once we've been reborn, we're battling with self. But simultaneously, as Linda was going a moment ago, as we're battling these problems, these fears, these insecurities, the guilt, the shame, the habits of the past, we will find that we will almost always have to make changes in relationships. There will be people in our network who are being used by God to encourage us, to, to lift us up, to speak truth into our life, to help us. And then there will be other people in our networks that are being used by the enemy to discourage us, to criticize us, to trick us, to deceive us, to draw us back into old patterns of destructive behavior. And as we're battling to overcome our own destructive habits, we'll necessarily need to make changes in who we trust. Who do you trust? Who do you listen to? What do you watch? What do you read? Who do you hang out with? Where do you go to church? Some relationships might only need to be readjusted. Uh, I'm not going to cut you out of my life, but I'm going to put some distance up and no longer let you be my internal advisor. I don't trust your perspectives anymore. I still love you because maybe you're a relative of some sort, but you're not in my inner network of confidants anymore. I don't share my secret thoughts with you anymore because you've proven that you are not trustworthy. Others you might need to cut out permanently. But what if it's a spouse? You're making advancement, but the other person isn't, or actually trying to undermine your advancement. Does the Bible tell us what to do in a circumstance when you're married to somebody who is being used by the enemy to destroy your fitness for, for, for God? Love them anyway. Does love them meaning you, mean you, you can trust them? No. No. So if you can't trust them, then do you let them into your inner circle of trust? No. So if they're in the inner circle of trust and you love them, but they're untrustworthy, what do you have to do? Let them go, sir. You have to cut them out of that circle. Mm. Now, that can be emotionally, cognitively, behaviorally, physically. I, I can't tell, but the, the question, does the Bible actually address the circumstance when you're married to somebody who is being used by the enemy to destroy your, your faithfulness? Well, there is a text that says, you know, if the person doesn't want you to leave, you should stay because you might be the source of their salvation. But that's not the whole text. The text actually gives both sides of the coin. What's the other side? 
So you're talking about Corinthians. I think Paul's talking about this circumstance. He said, you're married to an unbeliever, but the unbeliever is not opposed to the belief, not, not, not interfering, not against you, then stay. Yeah. But if they actually are, are hostile, antagonistic, against, working against, and she, he says, Jesus wants to leave, let them go. But was there a certificate of divorce given? Did Moses give them a certificate of divorce? Directed by God. Now, this wasn't in my notes, but you brought it up, so we're going to deal with it. And, and, and they brought it up to Jesus. Now, how do you balance... There's lots of ways to approach it. Does the Bible say God hates divorce? Did Jesus say God did not design it for it to be this way, but that the two should become one? Did, did God also instruct the certificate of divorce? Yes. Mm-hmm. Now, which of those are inspired? Yes. Ah, okay. All righty. So, so which rule is the rule that you follow? If, if you have contradictory things in Scripture, and they're all inspired by the Spirit, do you get to pick and choose the ones you like? Because, hey, I got this one, I, can do, I get this one? Or is there, do, you, do you have an understanding? If you're rules-oriented, then you get to pick and choose your rule whenever you feel like it. But if you're principles, design law oriented, then it all makes perfect sense. And the design law, there was a reason. Jesus said, he explained, you got a certificate of divorce because of the hardness of your hearts. Now, on a design law understanding of reality, what does hardness of heart actually mean? Uh, rebellion. It means refusing to change. Okay, refusing to change, rebellion, they're both right. Can, can we distill it down to a core motive? Selfishness, Selfishness which is the opposite of love. love. And in the conversion versus the unconversion, is hardness of heart ever used? Is the idea of the hard heart used in any metaphor related to conversion? What, what's the metaphor used about the hard heart? Take out your heart of stone. I will take out your heart of stone and put in a tender heart, a, a loving heart in other words. So what God is saying is it was never intended for there to be divorce because relationships were supposed to be built on love, mutual, other-centered love, where husbands love their wife as Christ loved the church and sacrifices and gives, other-centered giving, and she receives the love and gives back. And it's never in a circle of other-centered love. That's how it was supposed to work. But instead, selfishness got in some hearts and they became hard and they did not love their spouse. And if you're not loving your spouse, what are you doing to your spouse? Hating. Hating perhaps. Tolerating tolerating perhaps, but if you're not loving, harming, harming harming your spouse, injuring your spouse. So in medicine, we have a a medical condition that is not, that that is very closely connected to this idea of hardening of hearts, hardening of arteries. And as the arteries harden, they, they stop having blood flow. Now, if you have this happen where the blood stops flowing into a limb, what happens to that limb if the blood doesn't flow into it? Yes. What, there's a condition. What's it called? Gangrene. 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 It's not getting blood flow. It's dying. It's gangrene. And now what is the medical treatment if you have a diabetic with, with hardening of the arteries, the, the blood doesn't flow anymore, the foot is now gangrene? What is the treatment for that? Amputation. Now, could we say doctors hate amputations. They hate cutting off limbs. They, they don't like it. It's no joy in that. Right, right. They would much rather revitalize and see the blood flow and the, and the life come back to the limb, wouldn't they? Yes. Yes. So doctors hate amputations. But do doctors have procedures and protocols that guide when you amputate? Yes. 
God hates divorce because love isn't flowing in hearts. Hardened people are dying. He hates relationships like this. But God has given protocols when it's proper to divorce. And you sever and cut off the gangrenous limb to save the person. And when the relationships become so hard-hearted, exploitive, abusive, and, and destructive that the parties will both be destroyed, it is better to sever the relationship because it's gangrenous Amen. than to lose the person. That's what the Bible is teaching. This is very, this is designed, it's very straightforward. It makes perfect sense. But it'd be better to do a bypass surgery on the heart, put a new heart in, where love flows again and the relationship heals. That's much better. So, sometimes you have to cut off relationships, including spousal relationships, if they're really dysfunctional and destructive and can't be healed. Then with new hearts and minds, maturing and ever-increasing Christ-likeness of character, wisdom, insight, developing fruits of the Spirit, we go forth in our communities to bring peace, to be peacemakers. We forgive those who've wronged us. We seek to use our energies to bless, to uplift, to protect, to heal, to restore, to lead others to the truth as it is in Jesus, but only through the methods of God, which are truth presented in love, leaving people free. free. And so Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. And as we do this, we look forward to the healing of various, of the various human tribes or or kindreds, or cultures, or nations under one head, Jesus Christ. In Zechariah 9, 9 and 10, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, a foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots of Ephraim and the war horses of Jerusalem. You might say, I'm taking away the tanks of the Soviet Union and the, and the planes of the United States. Okay? Uh, and the battle and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. And then we remember the famous text in Isaiah 9. For unto us a child is born, son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. An increase of his government and peace there will be no end. How do you get this kind of peace? Where does this kind of peace start? If we're going to have peace to the nations, as you look around the world today, as you watch the news, if you, if you dare turn your TV on to watch that, do you see peace in the world today? No. 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 Or are you seeing more and more and more chaos, conflict, violence, wars of various kinds? I don't mean just national wars like one nation invading another nation. I'm talking wars. <laughs> People are warring against each other. Amen. So how do you get this kind of peace? Where does it start? Individual hearts. Individual hearts. Absolutely starts with every individual heart. First having peace with God. Then battling with self to overcome the infection of fear and selfishness so that they can relate to others like Jesus relates to us. But if we understand what I just said to be true, then what do you do with Jesus' words in Matthew 10, 34 through 36? This is from the NIV. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a, man's fa- against, a man against his father and a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, a man's enemies will be members of his own household. thought he came to bring peace. Which, no, is, is, is this one of those inspired texts? This is Jesus' words. <laughs> so what does it mean? 
I think the truth is more important than uh, peace. Is Jesus the Prince of Peace? Yes. 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 Can we have peace with those who are actively working to harm, destroy, deceive, and lead away from God and God's kingdom? Can we have peace with them? How about if they're members of our own family? Can we have peace with them? No. no. Makes it harder. Only if you... Can we love them while they're doing evil? Yes. 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 Can we love them? Yes. But can we have peace with them? No. No. This is what he's saying. So my paraphrase from the remedy, don't think that I have come to make peace with a selfish world. I have not come to bring peace with selfishness, but to a sword, to cut selfishness out of hearts and minds of people. I've come to cut dysfunctional family ties, to free a son from the selfish loyalty to his father's ambitions and feuds, to sever a daughter from the control of an oppressive and manipulative mother, to cut through the fear and hostility a daughter-in-law has towards her mother-in-law. A person's worst enemies are often members of their own family. Does that make sense? That's design law. Healthy relationships require healthy people. You cannot have a healthy relationship. You cannot have a peaceful relationship with people who remain in rebellion against God and who are practicing satanic methods in their life. Fear, selfishness, exploitation, control, manipulation, deceit. You can't have a healthy relationship with them. You can't have a peaceful relationship with them. Even if you were sinless and perfect like Jesus, you couldn't have it. Look at Jesus' relationship with Judas. How did it end? In betrayal. That relationship was not a healthy relationship. Not because Jesus was deficient, not because Jesus did anything wrong, not because there was more he could have done that he didn't do, but because Judas remained selfish, exploitive, manipulative, deceitful, greedy. He was unhealthy. This is a powerful lesson for us today because I have many people, I know many people, many of my patients, who have relationships that break down. And they falsely take responsibility for what the other person chose to do. Amen. Or they stay in a dysfunctional relationship, allowing others to manipulate them and control them in order to avoid their own personal fears of rejection and abandonment, rather than focusing on choosing to do in governance of self what is actually right, healthy, reasonable in the fulfillment of God's calling and purpose for their life. Peace on all levels is only possible when we are reconciled to God and live out his methods and principles in our life. Sunday's lesson is the metaphor of the church as an army. And do you remember the the song, Onward, Christian Soldiers? I think we might have those words. Marching on to war with the cross of Jesus, going on before Christ the royal master leads against the foe, forward into battle, see the banners go. Aren't you glad I didn't sing that for you? When you think of this war, I remember saying this as a kid. What comes to mind? Same thing come to mind today that came to mind when you sang the song as a kid growing up. Or do you think about this war differently now? Well, as you think about this idea of war, now think about Jesus' words in Matthew eleven twelve. This is what, he, what Jesus said. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. 
hmm, is Jesus' kingdom, if, if it's the kingdom of peace that we've just been talking about, how do forceful people forcefully advance it? If it's the kingdom of peace, if I'm going to force my way into your church, your house, your home, your country, to forcefully give you a Bible and forcefully baptize you, how am I advancing peace? Depends on the kind of force that you're wielding. Can God's kingdom be advanced, procured, achieved by might, force, and power? Didn't God say, not by might, nor by power, but by the way the Spirit works, says the Lord, Zechariah 4, 6. So how is this, what does this mean? When you read text, is it ever confusing? Get a different translation. It's a great opportunity to check other translations. So the good news really helps us out. If you take the same text, Matthew 11, 12, and the good news, see if this helps shed light on it. From the time John preached his message until this very day, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violent attacks and violent men try to seize it. Oh, does that give you a different view? Similar to Nazby. Yeah. So, so, but that's different than the NIV. Sounds a lot different, doesn't it? Yeah. God's kingdom is the kingdom of truth, love, and freedom. It's built upon design law. The protocols the creator built reality to function upon. It cannot be advanced through might, power, force, coercion, external control, imposed laws, intimidations, afflicted punishments. You, can't, you actually get more rebellion if you do that. God cannot win people to love and trust him by threatening to torture and kill people who don't love and trust him. Yes? And isn't love the greatest force in the universe? It depends, I guess, how you define the term force. Paul talks about the love love of, of God compels him. So it depends on what you mean by, by force, energy, power. The, the gospel is the, uh, the good news, is, or the gospel is the power of God into salvation, Paul talks about. So there is a power there, but it's not external power. In the kingdom of God, yeah. Wouldn't love be that force that Matthew's talking about? To advance the kingdom? How do you advance the kingdom without love? So you're talking about from the NIV translation. Right. That kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advanced and forceful men. So you would say then that that the way the the NIV is translated is the kingdom of heaven has been lovingly advancing and loving people have been. uh, You could, that's an interpretation. Mm -hmm. But the language didn't choose the words that the Bible has for love there. They choose the words for power or force. So I think a different idea, I, I think the, for me, the idea is that it's just the opposite what's happening. What he's describing is, what you're saying is true, the kingdom is advanced through love, through truth, through freedom. However, from the time of John to this very day, Jesus is warning that people who don't practice love, who practice violence, who practice coercion, who practice control, have been attacking him and his disciples and his kingdom, which is what he'd been suffering, and John was arrested and beheaded. And if you look at the process, and then what happened? They sought to take control of the church. And this is what what I think is actually being described here, is that Satan's kingdom operates on imposed law with inflicted punishments, and it advanced through external control and legal enforcement, and Jesus is telling us that since the time of John the Baptist, his true kingdom of love that Christie was mentioning, that operates within hearts and minds, that violent men who embrace the worldly methods of law and coercive enforcement have been trying to take control of the message and the power 
And that's what happened to Christianity. Christianity was taken over by Rome with the Roman idea of power and authority. And it would advance through the Roman system of imperialism. And we're fighting on the same battlefield today with the same enemy using the same weapons that Jesus had fought against. Jesus won every, count, every encounter in his personal battle, but the church, and, and it was prophesied, we can go to the prophecies if you want, we can go to the history, but the church itself would say that this little horn power is going to wage war and was going to be defeating the saints until a certain time comes. How was this little horn power defeating the saints? By getting them to believe God's kingdom runs like Rome and use those methods and how they advance their version of truth. But Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against his true church that's built upon himself, Matthew 16, 18. That's a very strange, if you think about warfare, the gates of hell will not prevail. When have you ever seen people running into battle carrying gates? (laughs) You never see that. But Jesus uses this description the gates of hell will not prevail. It's a very, and you think, what do gates actually do? What, what's the function of a gate? It either keeps something out or keeps something in. That's exactly right. And Satan is the deceiver. He has lied about God. He's taken hearts and minds captive into a delusional fantasy way of seeing the world through this Romanization of Christianity where hearts and minds have been trapped in fear, selfishness, rituals, and all kinds of other things, and fear of a punishing God who's going to come and and we have to do something to propitiate and assuage his wrath and all this kind of stuff. Hearts and minds have been trapped. But Jesus said, those gates are not going to prevail. They're going to be demolished by the divine weapons And so we don't wage wars the world does. We use the divine weapons to demolish strongholds, and we demolish every argument and pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And those gates, those lies about God and his kingdom come crashing down, and hearts and minds are set free. And I think of the gates of hell as being Satan is ever trying to get people to stick, be on his side until they die, because then he feels like he's got them. You know, the gates of hell are like... Satan's finally got them. That he's he has prevailed in each one of their lives. You understand what I'm saying? No. <laughs> well, the idea of gates for me in this warfare. What is what type of warfare are we in? Spiritual. Spiritual warfare. It's in. It's happening in hearts and minds. And so. But it concludes at death. I mean, for a person who's not saved, it concludes at death. And so the gates of hell would be uh, maybe an, uh, an allusion to death. They, death won't prevail. I'll have to think about that. <laughs> I'm not quite with you yet, but I'm not against you either. <laughs> I'm, I'm processing. I'm processing. I'm, I'm trying to see how that, that, that fits into the, to the process here. Um, but, but we demolish, notice what we demolish, we demolish, divine weapon of truth demolishes lies. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. free. The divine weapon of love demolishes fear. 
There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. These are the weapons we wield that demolish it. But people are, are held captive. I'm telling you, if, if you've dealt with hearts and minds of people, they're held captive in false belief systems, delusional thinking systems, and they're held captive in fear. And the gates of their mind are closed because they won't accept new information. And that's exactly right. No, that's exactly it. Yeah. yeah. So we war against the lies with truth and fear and selfishness with love. The infinite love of God, which is found only in Jesus. So in Jesus, we do as Jesus instructed. This is Matthew 5, 44 and 45 and, and verse 48. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. What is Bible perfection? Maturity. Maturity. It is about being, Job is perfect and righteous in all his ways. No one on the earth like him. Job was not sinless. Job, though, in his relationship with God, came to the point that nothing could shake him out of trusting God. Even though he didn't understand, and he had lots of questions as you read the book of Job, the bottom line issue for Job was, even if God were the one to slay me, yet will I trust him. He was perfect in his trust of his Father in heaven. There are others who've achieved that in Scripture, that type of perfection. Can you think of any others who achieved that type of perfection in Scripture? Abraham, Stephen, Joseph. Stephen would be a good example. Three guys in the furnace. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they would rather be burned alive than to betray their trust. Daniel in the lion's den. Enoch must have been. Enoch certainly had to be, for sure. Elijah got to that point, even though... It was right, at, right before his translation because he had a little bit of doubt when he ran away and complained to just kill me and die. He was still struggling at that point, but he got the victory, didn't he? Yeah. Jacob, I think, the night that he wrestles with the angel and finally overcomes that fear and selfishness of his own heart, and his name is changed to one who with God overcomes. These are not sinless people. Above perfection is not about task performance. It's about maturing of your heart in your relationship with God that you won't break trust with him, even if you don't understand. Well, isn't every person, whether they're in the Bible or not, who have died but accepted Jesus as their Savior, they have accomplished that task, right? Not before their death. That's what the heavenly sanctuary message is all about, that that's being accomplished for them in Christ right now. Okay, okay. Okay. So, but some people accomplish that before their death. But many people are not mature. They trust Jesus, but they're still immature, childlike, and they're saved, but this is what the whole cleansing of the sanctuary message is all about. I encourage you to read our magazine, The Wedding. Okay. Okay, yes. Isn't that what uh, Three Angels' message is going to do, is going to solidify and mold and... I mean, we're doing the work, we're in the process right now. So my understanding is that the final movements on planet Earth bring everyone to crisis decision points. Yeah. that the, the final generation that's alive when Jesus appears in the clouds will be very similar to Job. They will have gone through some very difficult circumstances that will require them to decide, are they going to trust God or are they going to side with the systems of the world? And that settles them uh, into their perfect, loyal, faithful trust in the Lord. It's not about task performance. It's not about whether, you, whether on Sabbath you had water that, that, that lapped up over your knee or not. That's not what it's about. We can never win 
the war for God's kingdom by embracing and practicing the methods of this world. Anybody want to argue that with me? Anybody disagree with that? We can never win the war for God's kingdom by embracing and practicing the methods of this world. But there's a lot of religious people who do. We cannot win people to love and friendship by seeking to control and dominate, punish, and destroy those who disagree with us. So we move forward with the truth, presented in love, leaving people free. But, but listen very carefully. We also cannot win the war for God's kingdom by compromising with the enemy and by agreeing with their falsehoods in order to get their approval or to truth cannot be exchanged for a lie for the sake of peace. We are at war. We war against lies, falsehoods, fear, selfishness, and all the violations of God's kingdom. In war, the force that takes the initiative often determines the battlefield where the war is going to be fought, and often those who are just reacting are, 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 less, are less likely to win than those who take the initiative. So this idea of, of warfare, Christ calls us to take the initiative in applying his methods, truth, love, freedom. Don't just be reactionary to what the world is doing. As Christians, are we advancing the kingdom of God by taking the initiative, moving the truth about Jesus forward, standing firm for reality. Remember, God is the creator. He is the builder of reality. He doesn't create fantasy worlds. He builds objective reality. Are we moving the truth forward, standing for what's actually real? Or do we too often react to the false allegations of God's enemy when we're accused and, 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 and find ourselves trying to prove ourselves to not be what we're being accused of, we collude with the enemy and start using their methods and principles just to prove that we're not what they say. For instance, when COVID swept the world, and the fear messaging and mind manipulation and coercive tactics were employed, did Christian organizations stand for the principles of truth, love, and liberty of conscience? Or did far too many embrace the methods of the world, and justify coercion of conscience and collusion with false government narratives. When greed-driven corporations and power-hungry politicians divide society based on race, sex, gender, and any other identity issue, does the church fall into the trap, their trap, and seek to prove how inclusive it is by holding sensitivity training and and workers' meetings to teach them how to be inclusive and sensitive to every identity group out there? Or does the church stand on the principles of God's kingdom and stand firm that there are only two groups, the saved and the lost, the righteous and the unrighteous? Those with Christ-like character and working for the kingdom of God and those with demonic, evil, self-centered character and working for the kingdom of this world. And thus, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. We are all one in Jesus Christ. Do we stand firm on that? That... Nationality, race, sex, tribe, language, marital status, vac status has no bearing in the church. Christ-like character and Jesus as your Savior has bearing in the church. Well, I've seen Christian organizations divided along all these lines. We're at war, but it's not a war of might and power. It's a war of methods, truth, love, freedom, at war against lies, fear, and selfishness. We will only succeed as we employ in governance of ourselves the methods of God's kingdom. First paragraph in Sunday's lesson says, victory in Greek and Roman warfare was dependent on the cooperation of the soldiers in a military unit and especially in their support for each other in the heat of battle 
Uh, individualism in battle was regarded as characteristic of barbaric warriors dooming them to defeat. There's a, there's a lot of truth in this. There's a lot of truth in this statement that we are uh, that in, in, in military units that have cohesion, uh, morale, work together, they do better than individual uh, a group that just goes out there as a mob. There's, there's no question about that. We as a group of Christians warring with the principles of God will do better when we have common cause, when we're aligned with the same motives, when we have the same goals, the same vision, practice the same principles, when we unite our talents and our resources. Uh, I, I am a creative writer. I, I, I write lots of, of, of stuff. I'm an, anal- I'm an analyst. I can analyze and, and get deep into the weeds. I am not an editor. Praise God for editors. <laughs> really? I, seriously. Uh, and, and, and our materials that some of you may, may benefit and appreciate are way better because after I've written them, they've gone through an editor who really cleans up and improves the presentation and the organization and, and the punctuation. Pardon? We should we clap for them right now. Clap for them right now, yes. <laughs> no question. But this is the point. We, 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 we do better when we work together and pull our talents, abilities, resources, encourage and help build up each other. There's no question about it. And so never do we want to undermine the power of a united force working together for good. We want to do all we can to develop such godly community and cohesion and, 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 and unity working together. That's, there's no question. But does that mean, because that's true, that we should we never fight alone and that we should not be prepared to fight alone? Well, consider this passage. This is referring to Jesus, Isaiah 63, 3. I have trodden the winepress alone. From the nations, no one was with me. Who stood with the following individuals in their Greatest spiritual confrontations in warfare. Job. Who stood with Job? Moses. Who stood with Moses? Joseph. Jeremiah. Elijah. John the Baptist. Isaiah. Have there been many faithful people in history who have stood before tribunals apparently alone? without much human support. And then this, count, this, this is a, a quote from a book called Counsels to Writers and Editors, page 39. And there are many in the church who take it for granted that they understand what they believe, but until controversy arises, they do not know their own weakness. When separated from those of like faith and compelled to stand singly and alone to explain their beliefs, they will be surprised to see how confused are their ideas and of what, of what they have accepted as truth. Certain it is that there has been among us a departure from the living God and a turning to men, putting human wisdom in place of divine. So of course we want to fight as a team. We want to have unit, unity of love, truth, motives, methods. We want to share and pull our resources together because we can do more, we can publish more, we can reach more. Of course, of course, of course, we never want to break that. We all individually need to be prepared to give a reason for the faith that we hold, be able to stand firm in the face of questioning and criticism, to have an understanding, and that comes from understanding objective reality. This type of thing, not knowing what you believe, 
is because you have, have formed a belief system based on declarations, proclamations, proof texting, somebody in authority told you the answer, system of rules, but you have no idea how it works. It'd be like learning math, and you know that two plus two is four, and how do you know? Because the teacher said so. <laughs> and it's right. The teacher said it's right. But you have no idea how to do math. And many Christians have maybe a list of 28 fundamental beliefs, and it's the right answer. All of them are right answers. They have no idea why they're the right answers. And thus, they can be confused very easily if somebody questions them that actually has some understanding of how reality works. Monday through Wednesday, any questions about that? Well, I have a, just a little thing to add. I think many of us, and I doubt I speak alone, hear how easily you put things into words. Then when we turn around and try to explain it Amen. to somebody, it's not as easy as it looks. You so, make it look easy. So there's no, there's, this is great. This is really great. There's a lesson here. Now, no, it's, it's an important lesson. Whether it's learning a new language, learning to play a musical instrument, some of us have better language talent. Some of us have better um, musical talent. But if you want to actually play an instrument or speak a language, what will you have to do? Practice. And if you don't practice, so if you want to be able to explain these things, what do you have to do? Practice. Find people to explain them to. And even if you're not Mozart, if you practice, you will get better from where you started. Yes? I'd like to validate what you just said. I've been an Adventist since I was like 13. And every time they talked about the Old and the New Covenant, I'm like, oh my goodness, I just don't understand this. And I would listen to different preachers, you know, on the internet. And I was listening to one who is, uh, who is supposed to be a great Bible scholar. And he said the Sabbath, the fourth commandment, was never intended to be permanent. And so just this week, this last two weeks, I've been reading a book about the Old and the New Covenant, and I've learned what that is, and I thought, he doesn't understand what the Old and New Covenant is. That's why he's, you know, he's saying that. Yep, yep. So thinking for yourself, reasoning for yourself, that's, that's good. Excellent. Don't let other people tell you. So, again, if you want to be, be more efficient in explaining others, if you are taking piano lessons, and you're a beginner at piano lessons, and you feel very, very uncomfortable of hitting a wrong note, somebody might laugh at you. So, so you never play or, uh, at all because, because somebody might laugh at your bad notes. Will you ever get better? No. No. And so many people go, I don't ever speak up because I'm afraid I might not say it well. And somebody might laugh and it might come out awkward and I might get my ideas crossed. And so they never practice saying it. They're never going to get better at saying it. I can tell you I, I have some old recordings of when I first started doing public speaking, um, you know, th th yes, they did have recording devices back then. <laughs> Wire recording. Wire recording. It was it was one of those Thomas Edison little little uh, recording little little <laughs> wheels. No, um, but I've gone back and listened to those, and I'm going to tell you, it was very very. Um, mm, Let's just say uh, I had a lot of growth to do. I made, I made myself cringe as I listened to it. Nobody starts out really, really good. You've got to practice. Don't you think, though, that, again, we are given gifts from the Holy Spirit, yeah. and you may try all you want, and it's just not going to be your thing. 
That's right. So, so you do want to apply yourself in the lanes where your gifts are. Yeah. That's, that's quite, so that's why you don't see me um, doing mu- special music all over the world. Okay. No, no, that doesn't, that doesn't mean I couldn't learn to, some basic piano chords and things, but that's not a, 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 a you know, musical you know, entertainer or performer. Yes. I don't think we should forget the power of our own testimony as well, though, because there may be things that I'm still studying out that I've learned here. But when it comes to, say, subjects of cleansing of the sanctuary, I don't have to, I don't have to, like, struggle to tell that because it's part of my story and how God saved me six years ago. And telling the story of how he did it and, and the fact that, you know, all the stuff came out of me that night and that not only did it happen just the first night and then I experienced peace for the first time, but I've continued to go through, you know, just this cleansing. It's not the same as it was the first time I was cleansed, but I still go through it even now. And that's not something I have to struggle with because... Now, this is an excellent point. And uh, if you ever take any professional speaking classes... One of the things that makes people uncomfortable to get up and speak in front of a group is the idea in their head that somebody in the audience knows more about the subject than they do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just imagine whatever your profession is, that you're getting up to speak on the topic that somebody in the audience wrote a textbook on. <laughs> it makes you uncomfortable, doesn't it? Okay? And, and this is what makes people uncomfortable, that you're speaking to people who know more about the subject than you do, and you might look foolish or, or say something. This is, this is the anxiety. And what, what you just said is, and what they'll tell you in public speaking classes is, you're the expert on your life. If you're giving a testimony of your experience of what you've gone through, there is nobody out there who can gainsay or criticize that testimony because that's your experience. And so they often tell you to kind of break the ice, start with a personal story, some story that applies to whatever that is, and and it'll help break the ice, get the audience in, help you relax, and then you can go on with your program. So just a little, but you're exactly right. Your personal testimony, you're the expert on. Monday through Wednesday's lesson, I've kind of grouped them together because they're all about the armor of God that we read about in Ephesians, and in, it, this armor that, that is, and you know the whole list, we may go through them in detail, but is the armor that we're to wear referring to fighting external warfare primarily, warfare against principalities and powers and evil people and, and corrupt systems, or is the armor primarily... Uh, focus on fighting the battle within ourselves. Have you ever thought of that? It's faith and salvation. So the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the spirit. These are the, now, so I just said them. So what were you going to say, Linda? I think I was along that same lines of salvation, the things that are mentioned as righteousness and faith and salvation, they are internal items. So when you think of, of, of putting on this armor, are you thinking that this armor is primarily to enable you to be successful in battling yourself? Battling yourself. Is anybody familiar with the Ellen White quote, the greatest battle we each have to fight is with ourselves, with our own fears, 
with her own doubts, with her own insecurities, with her own habits, with her own um, distorted thinking or bad patterns of living, with her own lusts, with her own carnal nature. The biggest battle we have is internal. And how the devil manipulates people, it says in James 1, no one should say God tempts because God doesn't tempt anyone. Each one of us are tempted more, dragged away and enticed by our own evil desires. And so the devil will inflame. He will work in our lives to inflame our fears, our insecurities, our doubts. And when you become fearful of something, what's the natural human desire? Protect yourself. Okay. And by the way, what does guilt and shame incite in people? Fear of rejection, fear of not being loved, fear of not being accepted, fear of being stoned, fear of punishment. That's what it does. And so the devil will whisper in your ear if you have some secret sin. You're you're too horrible for salvation. If people only knew, they wouldn't love you. Your family would leave you. You would be fired from your job. You'd You'd be... Disciplined by your church. And this is why everybody, not everybody, this is why many people in the churches live a double life. But they can also probably whisper, you know, it's fine what you were doing, so you keep doing it. Nobody's going to find out. Nobody's going to hurt. Right. This is the, this exactly. So this is the rationalization of the defense. You make excuses. You justify. Uh, and you put on the facade to go to church because you don't come to church and say, Hi, I'm Pastor Smith, and, and I've got a porn addiction. Because you're not, you're not the pastor of that church next week. Or any other church. But if you go to a 12-step meeting and you say that, what happens? The greatest battles we have, and so the devil uses guilt and shame to cause people to live in fear that if anybody ever knew that, and by the way, I'm going to tell you all a secret right now. Every one of you in this room, including me, are sinners saved by grace. (laughs) But we uh, we just eliminate churches and start 12 step programs. (laughs) 12 step programs often end up very self referenced. About me, focusing on me, winning my battle for me. So that I'm going to, and all the things I need, so that I can succeed in, in my abstinence and my, in my recovery. It's all about me and my recovery. True, true. Uh, now, it, it is true at the higher ones, there are aspects where we're supposed to return, and, but, but, but most 12 steps are, are, that I've worked with, The people become, it's all about uh, uh, substance or behavior avoidance, not about heart transformation, even though I think originally it was intended to be that way. Yeah. Yeah. What the 12 steps did for me was to bring me back into a relationship with God. And that's because you knew knew who God was. But if you actually look at the 12 steps, they've taken the principles of Christianity. And we have a a, a little track on on the principle, the 12-step principles in Christianity. They all come from Christianity. But they've taken the 12-step principles and tried to divorce them from Christ. But what I did was I outgrew that and knew that, you know, that that wasn't me as long as I kept my relationship with God and, and had unity in a church. So we admit, step one, we admit that we are powerless over our addiction and our lives have become unmanageable. Step two, we believe that a power higher than ourselves can restore us to sanity. Does, does that power mean Jesus? 
in the 12 steps? The God of your understanding. I had one patient whose God was his skateboard. His skateboard could return him to sanity. This is the problem with the 12 steps. They, they, they take principles that are true. If you actually plug Jesus in and God and the true God in, then these principles can have a lot of power in your life. But what happens is they become very self-directed and self-maintaining um, because you're actually using the ideas without, without connecting with Jesus Christ. Do you think that's why the armor starts with truth? It's truth about who God is, truth about who we are, truth about our condition. So I, thank you for that, Eve. This, the armor starts with the, the belt of truth because as a, as a physician, and one of the things I'm teaching and I, I teach everybody who works with me is that all good treatment starts with the diagnosis, the correct diagnosis. If your diagnosis is wrong, then your treatment is wrong. Okay, and the diagnosis is the truth. What's actually wrong? What's the, what's the objective reality? It's not what I believe. The, the right diagnosis is what's actually real in that person's life. This is true for the plan of salvation, by the way. If you want to actually understand Scripture and God's plan of salvation, you can't, the plan of salvation, would you all agree, however you describe it, however anybody describes it, the plan of salvation is the plan to fix the sin problem? Yes, yes or no? Yes. Okay, so... In order to understand the plan, the treatment, the solution, don't you actually have to understand or diagnose the problem first? Yes. Yes, and if you diagnose the problem as a legal problem, broke rules, in trouble with a heavenly magistrate, uh, there is legal penalties that must be applied. If that's your diagnosis, that determines how you interpret the solution. Okay, so if your diagnosis is wrong, your treatment is wrong. And so because people have accepted the Roman view of law, they have misdiagnosed that the sin problem is a penal legal problem, and they've come up with a false penal legal solution. And it doesn't work. It's a form of godliness with no power. And so you're exactly right, the belt of truth. What's objective truth? Who is God? How does the kingdom work? And how you understand God's character is determined by how you understand his law. If you believe his law works like human law, system of rules like we make up that require oversight and infliction of punishment, if you believe that about his law, that determines that you believe he is the enforcer. Just, of course, he wouldn't punish anybody more than they deserved, of course. But, but you will believe that punishment comes out from him to enforce his law. He is the source of inflicted pain, suffering, and death. Thus, you have attributed to him the characteristics of a creature and you are no longer worshiping a creator. And that's Satan's goal. And Satan has replaced God in the spirit temple as the one being worshiped. And that's how he does it. By getting us to believe God's law works like human law. We still call him Jesus. We still call him God. But yet we attribute to him and believe him in character to be functionally no different than a powerful creature. And this is why the third angel's message is to call people back to, first off, um, make a right judgment about God. Fear God and glory to him for the hour of his, his judgment has come. The hour that he is going to finally be judged to be who he has revealed himself to be in nature and in Christ and in scripture and worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that in them is the creator, which requires we reject this whole idea of, of imperial law and worship him as the designer whose law or the laws that reality are built upon. So belt of truth, what's the breastplate of righteousness? Let's go through these really quick. Breastplate of righteousness, what is that? Breastplate, breastplate. When you think of breastplate, uh, imagery, metaphorical, where is it focusing our attention? 
Heart. On our hearts. Heart. Yeah, exactly right. So, the, so the, the belt of truth brings us a diagnosis that we are sinners, can't save ourselves, brings us to the truth about who God is, and we humble ourselves before him and open our heart to him, and then we receive a new heart and race with the breastplate of righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. We are reborn. And then the gospel of peace. We're talking about peace today, the gospel of peace. We have peace with God. We're no longer living in fear, in guilt, in shame. We are at peace with. People might criticize us. Why do we care what people say? We have peace with God. We have peace. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Why do we care what people say? We have peace with God. We have the, the, the gospel of peace, the good news that brings peace. We have a shield of faith. We trust that no matter how it appears, Job, even if God were to slay me, yet I will trust him. I don't know why, but there must be some good in this I can't see right now. We have the shield of faith. We don't, we don't, we don't doubt God's goodness. Helmet of salvation. What, where, where does the helmet focus your attention? Mind. On the mind. We, we have matured. We think. We have clarity and understanding. We not only have the heart that is reborn to love God, and we have faith in him, we now have a mind that has discernment. We've matured. The mature of those who are dealt by practice, ability to discern right from wrong. We have the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God that we can use the truth to break and, and break down these, these barriers of hell that hold minds captive. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love. We thank you for what you revealed to us. We thank you that you are the creator God who has built reality to operate on the principles of truth, love, and freedom. We are so humbled by what you have achieved for us through Jesus Christ. We ask your spirit to take the victory of Christ, reproduce it in us, and make us effective at this time in history that you might come soon, we pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.